Corinthians. So we're in 2 Timothy 2. Um, this is actually basically what our text is about. Let me just briefly explain. Uh, 2 Timothy 2. Paul is writing to a young pastor, probably in his 30s. His name is Timothy, obviously, in 2 Timothy. And he's the pastor of a church called Ephesus. Ephesus is a large city. It's a thriving city economically. It's a pagan city. Uh, there is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Ephesus, a temple there. Um, there was a lot happening in Ephesus, a lot of life in Ephesus, a lot of false gods and idolatry in Ephesus. You could say there's a lot of parallels between uh, Ephesus and South Florida. And Paul's writing to this pastor, and basically, if you know this, you probably do know this, but this was his last letter that he wrote, Paul. Paul wrote this from prison. Um, it's primarily believed that this was the last thing he penned before he was beheaded in Rome. So imagine Paul kind of looking back at his life, like passing off the mantle and basically saying, stay focused. Don't lose sight of what matters. He uses these different metaphors and says, you're a soldier. You're an athlete. You're a farmer. Like this is who you are in Christ. You're a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. And he kind of gives reasons why he says that. And he says, we, you, need to, in Ephesus, build up disciples, equip your leaders, find other men and women who you can impart the gospel into that will raise up other men and women. And so 2 Timothy 2 to me is like, you see so much of Paul's heart for what the church ought to be, for what the church could be. Um, so the title today is simply, Who We Want to Be, Who We Want to Be. Today, to, to kick off this year, just saying, God, we want to be what you have in mind for us. I think it's possible for us, of course, like anyone else, to fall into the trap of just being the American church. And my heart really does grieve over this um, because I don't want this to be a place where like you come and go kind of, you know, when you please, you're kind of involved, but maybe not so much. Maybe you kind of have like church hurt from the past where you're like, make, if I get too involved, maybe I'll get hurt again. And you probably will, you know, obviously we are a group of people who are broken following Jesus. And like, just like any sort of family, it's dysfunctional. And you're going to see some things like, it's funny when I talk to people who are like newer, newer, and you kind of have those eyes, those like fresh eyes, like you're dating someone for the first time. You're like, I love this place. I love the exchange. A few months go by and they're like, there's a lot of messed up people and things happen here. You're like, yes, welcome. Um, and that's part of any sort of dynamic. That honeymoon phase is almost over and you go, man, there's some things here I don't know if I love. Great, welcome. Come on and work on it with us. Like, here's the thing. We want to fight for this together. We want to say like, we're not okay with the status quo Christianity. Like, how do we just wake up I do feel like just there's different times in my faith where the Lord's like, wake up. You're on autopilot. Like, live for what matters. And so my hope is to say the work of the ministry is not necessarily just here on Sunday, but it's the body of Christ being, like, out. You know, I, I love the idea of, like, of, you know, it's been said that Christians are like manure. When they're together, piled up, they stink. But spread out, it does a lot of good. And I think it's true. <laughs> I think spread out, we do a lot of good. I think piled up and just kind of fixated on our little Christian things, we lose sight of like what God is. We come and we gather so we can be equipped and then so we can be scattered throughout. And then we come to be refreshed and filled and equipped and we scatter. And I just want to invite you into that this year. I just want to invite you into all that God has for you in 2024. I just want to say there is a spiritual battle. There is going to be a fight. And how can we pray and live for this, like on earth, Jesus, yes, your will and your kingdom here in South Florida as it is in heaven. I would love to do life with people who say, not my will, not my kingdom, his will, his kingdom here 
on earth. And so that's our hope. Man, we just want to kind of start off the year with that focus. And um, I'm excited for what the Lord's going to do. I can't even wait for Daniel. So anyways, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Why don't we just read what Paul is writing to Timothy. Hey, man, he's like, do this. Live this way. Raise up these people. And uh, we'll read the text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, and then we'll pray. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, you guys ready? You guys good? Sorry. Okay, good morning. Paul writes, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen to this. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus. We could just, isn't that good? That's a sermon right there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, uh, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. How good is that? I'm bound, but you can never bind the word of God. Why don't we just pray? Invite the Lord to speak, to move, and uh, we'll jump in. Father, we just want to thank you again. I want to thank you for everyone in this place, Jesus. Lord, you see them. You, you know where they're at today. You know what's been on their mind this week. Lord, you know what's kind of just either brought them anxiety or fear or joy. Lord, you, you know everything in between, Lord. I just ask that you right now would remind us of why we are here, that we would do what Paul said, that we would remember you, Jesus that you rose from the grave, that, Lord, we would live in that truth of the resurrection, that the same power who rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. Lord, help us to live in that, remember that. God, I just ask for myself, my family, every individual, their family, that Jesus, this year, we would just not be on autopilot. We would say, yes, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, I do ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we are just asking for you to do something fresh and new in us. Bring us perspective, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. All right, I'm like afraid to ask this question, but um, we're a week into the year. How many of you have already given up on your New Year's resolutions? I'm just kind of curious. <laughs> Seven days in. Uh, it's funny, we were on a road trip back a few days ago, and um, we stopped at a Wawa, and I overheard this, like, this is you know, kind of older guy who was like t really tough looking and he's with his mom. And I don't know, somehow I overheard him say, he goes, mom, I don't know if I told you, my New Year's resolution is to be a lot nicer this year. And she's like, oh, honey, you're so nice. He's like, yeah, but not a lot of people see me that way. And I don't know why it's so great. I was like, love hearing this. I'm like, all right. You know, this big burly guy is like with his mom. Mom, I just want to be nicer. Honey, you're nice. I'm like, oh, what a mom. That's a mom right there. And 
obviously got me wondering and thinking, like, what, those, those New Year's resolutions. Obviously, some of you, you know, I love this. Some of you are like, every year, like, I'm in, I have some, I wrote them down, I have a plan, it's clear, it's crisp. Others of you are like, kind of like Scrooge towards New Year's resolutions, like, bah humbug, it's all, a, you know, a, a, sham, a sham, like, I do not believe in it, it never works, it never, I just don't like it. I do think there's something about, you know, sitting down, writing out some vision, writing out some goals, create some action stuff. There's something helpful about that. I mean, obviously human nature is usually, and it's funny how you read most articles coming out even now, usually either you stop believing in the goals or you just lose the ambition and ability to fulfill those goals. Um, I was reading some stats and data on this. 30% of New Year's resolutions fail after two weeks. 30% fail after two weeks. 40% fail after one month. 40% after one month. 60% fail after six months. Um, Happy New Year. I don't know. Uh, I love that. Most of us like be like, yes, I'm in. I want to do this. And then it fails. And I do think there's a difference because a lot of times our goals are so external. I want to lose weight. I want to learn a new language. I want to maybe change my career. A lot of it's external type of things. I do think there's something about having like an internal heart sort of resolution saying, it's not so much about the externals I want to accomplish. I want some internal things to be accomplished in me in this way. I think this is something we should care about. So here's the idea. Who cares if you have some New Year's resolutions that you actually accomplish? What if it's just the wrong thing? What if you accomplished it, but it didn't really matter? I've used this quote a lot. It's just powerful. Francis Chan famously said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. It's not so much that a failure. You know, people say the worst thing is just to fail to not try. Um, I love this thought. No, what if you got everything you ever set your mind and heart to do, but it's just the wrong thing to do? I do think that there should be some internal heart posture things we seek to accomplish. So what Paul is basically saying here is a vision is only as good as its cause. People might say, do you have a vision for your life? And you might have a vision for your life, but it's only as good as the cause. So I want to like kind of explore that and look at that. Another way to put this kind of idea, it's Proverbs 4, 23. You know this verse. He says, guard your heart above all else. Why? For it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above everything else. Why? This determines the course of your life. There's external goals that might be good, but what if there's some more internal things? You're like, I, Lord, I want you to internally do something to me because I need to guard my heart, those internal things, because that will lead to like the production and success outwardly or not. It's based off the heart. So here's ultimate Paul is saying. He's saying, Timothy, there's a lot of things you could be focused on as a church leader. I need you to raise up men and women. I need you to raise up men and women who can be committed to the gospel of Jesus, who can be soldiers and farmers and athletes. He's basically saying, this is the greatest thing you can give yourself to. Raise up people. Um, the, the, the hope that I want to accomplish today is just th this simple phrase. The key to the church is the quality of its disciples. The key to the church is the quality of its disciples. You could say, obviously, it's the quality of its leaders, but the key to just a healthy church is the quality of its disciples. Here's the thing. The church is a lot of things, and there's a lot of different analogies we can use for the church. Absolutely. And I don't mind looking at the church in a lot of different ways. I think the, the church should be a hospital for sick people come. Jesus is the great physician. I think it is like a training camp or like, you know, a military camp to train you to go out and do ministry. There's so many different things. 
I, I think we have to realize that this is supposed to be like a discipleship factory where we just produce disciples. And there's such an emphasis on making disciples of Jesus and focusing on the person of Jesus, becoming like Jesus. And my thing is, I don't want to get sidetracked. Like, why do we exist? Why does the body of Christ, the bride of Christ exist? Do you think, and I think, maybe you think this, I think that so often the church can kind of get fixated on its little hobby horses, and it can make secondary things the primary thing. I don't want that to happen here. I, would, I want the emphasis Today, tomorrow, 30, 40, 50 years, I want the, the emphasis to be on the person of Jesus and walking with Jesus and learning from Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And I don't want to lose sight of that. And it is very easy, in light of 2024, every few years, it's very easy to get fixated on secondary issues. And how do we say, no, we're going to be about the gospel of Jesus. We are not going to lose sight of what really matters here. So look at verse 1 again. Here's Paul's encouragement, and then we'll kind of get to some points in a second. But here's what Paul's saying ultimately in verse 1. Paul, verse 1, says what? He says, you then, my child. He's like, I've raised you up. Timothy, you're my child in the faith. I poured into you. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right, so let's look at the first phrase. And trust to faithful men. And trust to faithful men. I just want to actually bring clarity to this, by the way. When he says, and trust to faithful men, in the Greek, the word for men is anthropos. Obviously, you might know that word. It might be familiar for you, like anthropology, the study of man. He's saying, and trust these to, to mankind. He, he's, it's, it's a u- word that's used, anthropos, for male and female. What he's saying is, and trust the gospel to faithful men and women. And trust it to people. So let's look at the word entrust. I want you to entrust this to faithful people. That simply means uh, put something of great value into someone's care or protection. Have you ever had someone say to you, like, watch this with your life or guard this with your life? Like, look over this. I remember that, you know, when I, we first had my daughter on, God is just looking for faithful men, faithful women. I want to say this. God is looking for just people who are faithful, who show up. You know, it's been said the greatest ability is availability, Right? Just the greatest thing is that I'm available, God. I'm here. I'm going to show up. What do you need? I'll do it. Nothing's below me. Nothing's above me. Like I can, whatever you need me to do, Lord, I'll do it. You know, there, I just, um, it's been sweet to look back at different seasons of your life. And you're like, Lord, thank you so much for that time with that person or individual or group of guys or whatever. And you look back and you go, Lord, I needed that. I'm very thankful for the different people who said, who've like said, Josiah, you need to be, you need to be corrected. You need to be poured into you, you need to be challenged. We're going to walk through this book together. We're going to walk through this thing together. We're going to meet every day at this time and pray. I want to say this, guys. Um, sometimes we look at discipleship in the church as like, I just want to be like holy. Like almost like, can't God just zap me with holiness? Can't God just like make me holy? And it's like, it doesn't work that way. There is no microwave Christianity. <laughs> it, it's it's going to take a while. And it's just going to be like, you got to show up. And you got to do the uncomfortable thing. And you got to put yourself out there and say, Lord, I'm going to put myself in this position where the only way this can work out is if you show up. And I'm going to need to make myself available to you. And here's what Paul is saying, and I just cannot, I don't want to move on from this too quickly. He's like, Timothy, and trust the gospel to faithful people, to people you can count on. I just want to say, like, church, I would love for us, I mean, you look at the problems in homes. You look at the problems that are happening. It's just people stop showing up. People stop being faithful. When something begins to crumble and fall apart, they lost sight of what mattered. Listen, if anything, if anything, what we need more than anything is just faithful men and women who said, I'm all in. I'm all in. God, what you need, I'm here. 
Paul says, entrust these to faithful people. I love what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. I love that. I'm not special. <laughs> You're not special. Sorry, but every, every book out there. Uh, it's, it's true. What you have in you, this gospel, is this treasure. That is, that is the thing, man. You have the gospel. You have this treasure placed in this broken claw, you know, clay jar, this vessel. God has placed something so valuable in you. And he's saying, people who get that and see that and say, Lord, you've given me the gospel. I don't want to squander this. I don't want to waste this. You give me your Holy Spirit. I don't want to waste, God, the gifts that you've given me, the calling you've given me. He's like, find people who understand the value of what it is they have. I think sometimes more than anything, we just, I don't know if we know what we have. Like, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus, when it comes to the idea of like heaven, hell, eternity, life, and death, it's just very easy. But yes, Jesus died for me and saved me. Sometimes we just have to sit in that for a little bit. God, where would I be without you? God, where would I be if you never came to earth? Where would I spend my eternity if Jesus, you didn't die in my place and rise again? God, what do I really deserve? Sometimes you have to just sit in it to go, oh my gosh, what God has given me is priceless. I have this treasure that is so valuable. And trust that to people who get the value of what it is they have. A part of me is like, before we do anything, just sit at the feet of Jesus and know all that you have in Christ Jesus. That you are blessed with all the heavenly blessings in the heavenly places. There's just something I don't know if we know. I don't know if I know what we have. And sometimes you just have to sit and, what, man, what do I have in you? He says, entrust this to faithful people. Now, the reason why um, I want to even just start off this way before we kind of get to the points, it's just you kind of see the tone and heart. I love what Paul says to Timothy in the very beginning in verse 1. I don't want to move over that. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Um, that phrase in verse 1, be strengthened by the grace, there's such a passivity to that. He's just saying, you need to receive the grace that's in Jesus. You know what's crazy about grace? You don't strive and work for grace, obviously. When it comes to grace, you just receive it. And this is confusing. And this is hard for us. Grace is just freely given. That's why it's grace. It's freely given. He's like, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. Do you know that there's a grace in Jesus? In Jesus, there's a grace. I used to think that in God, there was just only wrath. Like there's only judgment. There will be judgment. But you know that in Jesus right now, there is grace. Do you know that we're told to come boldly to the throne of grace? That I love that God's like, hey, there's a grace in Jesus. You need to be strengthened by it. There's something that's in Jesus that you can only receive by spending time with him. This grace just comes from just passivity, being with him. Not working for it, not striving for it. You know, to put it another way, we need people of grace. Like, I, I love, when you meet someone who's been walking with Jesus 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and you're like, oh my, oh my gosh, you've been doing this a long time. And there's some people who have this really beautiful, like, grace on them. It's always discouraging when you meet someone who's like, I've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, and I'm mad at everything. And you're like, I don't know if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years. Um, you, you know, it's, it's just funny. It's like, there's no joy, there's no singing, there's no life. But when you meet someone who's been like, I've been with Jesus since I was a kid, and, and you see it all over them. And you're like, wow, you have this, you have this beautiful joy to you, this beautiful love for life. And it's like, yeah, that's just come from sitting at the feet of Jesus. Listen, we need people of grace. We just do. Uh, it's weird because I've been around a community of people where it's just based off self-righteousness and off their works and what they do and what they've accomplished. And that's a miserable group to be around. When you get around people who are just constantly talking about their accomplishments and what they've done, you're like, I don't like that. But you get around people who are like, isn't God so good? God's been so gracious. 
man, I need this grace daily. And you get around people who like understand the grace of God. There's something so refreshing about that. There's like that when the self-righteousness is removed from them and they're like, yeah, I'm a broken person who just is in pursuit of Jesus just like you. There's something so sweet about that. Paul says, hey, Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. There's this grace that's available and really you receive it from passivity, just being with him. He's describing discipleship in such a beautiful way because he's got to get into some details of like, now be a soldier, now be this. But it, it st- starts with and stems from grace. And before it's like, now be a soldier, be a farmer, and like all this stuff. It's great. But it just comes from this place of grace. And I can't encourage you enough to receive the grace that is in Jesus. There's something so free in the day when you realize God loves me because he loves me. <laughs> There's no other reason. Why do we love him? I always, like this, I don't know, the song we sing today, like, you know, about our love for him. I always feel like, ugh. It's hard for me to sometimes sing it because you're like, God, I realize that the love I have from you is only because you've loved me first. It's only because you pursued me first. It's only because you sought after me first. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. Now, this whole text, by the way, is all about disciple making. And he's basically, and trust these, the faithful man who can raise up other men. C- keep doing that. Keep pr- passing that on. And you see the focus. Now, I want to put it this way, um, disciple making. Because you're like, what is this? Disciple making is intentionally and relationally investing oneself in the spiritual growth and maturity of others. Do you guys see that? It's intentionally and relationally investing yourself in others for their, for their spiritual growth. So here's what I want to say. Um, discipleship will never just happen on accident. You have to be intentional and you have to be very relational. I've had people, you know, call me before in the past and be like, Josiah, I'd like to disciple you. I'm like, I don't know you. <laughs> you know, like, like it's just funny. It ha- there has to be a sense of relationship. There has to be a sense of intentionality. Where they sit, you know, if you ever sit down with anyone, you're like, so what are we doing? What are we talking about? Oh, no, you tell me. You're like, oh, gosh. Like, it's nice to have a plan. It's nice to walk through that. So here's a couple things about this, and you're going to see this just throughout scriptures. A couple things I want to put about discipleship. You're going to see content, intent, context. Content, intent, context. All right? The content of discipleship. Like, the content matters. What's our content? Our content is simply the gospel. Okay, let me just make sure it's really clear. The content, the focus we have is the gospel. Um, I don't want to lose sight of that, obviously. I don't want to lose sight of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he said, what he claimed, how he lived, how he died, how he rose again, how he empowers his church through this Holy Spirit, through the letters that we have today. I, I don't want to lose sight of the gospel of Jesus. I don't want to lose sight of that. I don't want to get sidetracked by secondary issues. Our content has to be the gospel. There's some people I've met over the years where I'm like, it seems like your discipleship is, you're trying to make a disciple of you, not of Jesus. And we don't need more disciples of other people. We need disciples of Jesus. Now, again, they're obviously the, your person that's discipling you. I'm sure they're going to rub off on you in some ways. But we need disciples of Jesus, and the content has to be Jesus. It has to be the gospel. It has to be his word. Okay, so we have to have the content be the gospel. The intent, what is the intent? It's multiplication. Let's not shy away from this. What's the intent? It's to make disciples of people who want to make more disciples of people. Okay? So I don't want to shy away like, so is your goal here growth? It's discipleship, which will lead to multiplication. Like, yes, that is a goal. Now, spiritually speaking, yes, we want to see their, their spiritual growth. But here's the thing. Imagine you're the last generation that's ever discipled. Imagine someone disciples you and it just dies with you. Then you're never really discipled. Then you're never discipled the right way. A disciple is someone who is a learner of someone else and continues that same tradition. So my point is, um, we cannot be the last generation that like, someone pours into us, it stays with us, and then it just dies out, obviously. Always be raising up the next generation. That might even be your age group. That might be older than you at times. 
But the idea is multiplication has to be the intent. We want to make disciples that people want to make disciples. Paul's like, teach other people who are going to teach others. Do you see the goal is multiplication? And then lastly, it's context. Our context is relationship. It's, it has to be like, hey, come. You might disagree with some things. You might be frustrated. You might have a crazy background. Come. We want to know you. God loves you. God knows you. God, God knows you better than you know yourself. We want to get to know you the same way. You are welcome here. You might think differently, act differently, look differently. That's okay. Obviously, the goal is relationship. I'm so thankful that Jesus walked among us, meaning Jesus took on human flesh, and he walked, and he ate, and he slept, and he woke up next to his friends. And the idea was, like, obviously, through deep relationship, discipleship happened. It was in deep relationship, discipleship happened. You know, in our discipleship pathway, this little thing, it's nothing crazy, it's nothing that profound, but kind of what we have in here, and you're going to see this over and over again, is um, be with Jesus, learn from Jesus, walk like Jesus. Meaning, the goal, first of all, it says in Mark 3 that the disciples were with Jesus. The disciples were with Jesus. That phrase is amazing. The first part of discipleship is just be with Jesus. Don't complicate this. Spend time with Jesus. How do I become a disciple? Spend time with him. Yes? We got that. And that might look in different ways. I'll say this is a way we can spend time with Jesus. I'll say learn from Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus talks about this. Learn of me. He says, come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn of me. So learn from Jesus. Learn from him. Read and study his teachings, his parables. God, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to communicate? What do you want to do in me? What do you want to do in me through the world? <clears throat> like, we got to be asking these questions. Learn from him. And then lastly, walk like him. Just do what Jesus did. So Jesus woke up early to pray or went to bed late and prayed and he fed people and he helped people and he communicated the gospel and preached the gospel. Okay, we'll walk like Jesus. If you're like, what does it mean to be a disciple? Be with him, learn from him, walk like him. Let's just start there. All right, you'll be a disciple. Just I want to learn. The word disciple just means learner. That's what it means. Disciple means learner. So much so that you be become the, the thing you're learning from. You become just like that. So be with, learn from walk like. Here's what Paul says in verse 2 that I have to point out before we move on to the analogies he gives. But look at verse 2 again. This is fascinating what he says. He says, what you've heard from me, so Paul to Timothy, he says, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men, to Anthropos, the faithful people, who will be able to teach others also. Okay, I want you to notice that. There's four generations in this discipleship. Think about it. Paul's like, what you've learned from me. So there's Paul, there's Timothy. He says, teach this to others who will teach others. So that's four. You get that? I love that in this verse, in verse 2, there's four generations. He's like, I've taught you. You're going to find those, teach them, and they're going to teach others. There's like four generations of discipleship happening in that, in that context. I don't know what my point is other than like we have to have multi-generational discipleship. I love that. Paul's like, it's from me to you, to you, to others, to others, will teach others. It has to keep going. It cannot just die out with this younger generation. It has to keep going. Make sure you teach others, you teach others. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Um, I've, I've maybe used this a few years ago. I love this thought. Um, at the Billy Graham Library, I mentioned that a couple weeks ago, um, there is this area of like how Billy Graham came to the faith, and it, I just love it. Um, I believe in Billy Graham's life. You, just, you guys know Billy Graham, right? I don't know, classic guy. Billy Graham, I think over 3 billion people heard him in his lifetime. Over 3 billion people heard the gospel of Jesus from this guy. So before we kind of get to some of the details, Three billion people heard the gospel from this guy. Unbelievable. I think it's like 3.2 million people that put their faith in Jesus from one of his messages. 3.2 million people. So here's the idea. Billy Graham, 
Um, you can see this in his library. You, I'm going to put the, uh, this up here. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who led this guy, maybe you've heard of him, it's kind of cool, named D.L. Moody to Christ. Unbelievable. Edward Kimball led D.L. Moody to Christ. D.L. Moody led this guy named J. Wilbur Chapman to Christ. Chapman led another well-known guy. His name is Billy Sunday, who's also an evangelist and an athlete. But he led Billy Sunday to Christ. Billy Sunday uh, led this guy named Mordecai Ham to Christ, who became an evangelist. And Mordecai Ham uh, led Billy Graham to Christ. And then Billy led about 3.2 million people to Christ. I love that you go back and you go, it starts with this guy named Edward Kimball, just a Sunday school teacher, who led Dale Moody to Christ, which is pretty sick. Um, but even, we get, this could just keep going. This is, who, who led Edward Kimball? Maybe it's probably his parents. The crazy thing is you can just keep going and going, and you realize what we're a part of. You realize, like, Lord, I, there's so many people before me that, in a sense, like, I, I, I'm in debt to. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you sent men and women to just preach the gospel, preach the gospel, and just pass down, pass down, pass down. My, my point is, we get to be a part of this, guys. Paul's like, raise up people who will raise up people. We get to be a part of this. I, I do want to fight for this. I do want to say, I'm not okay with just like, we come, we hear, we leave. There's so much more. And I hope that there's a, a sense of equipping that happens, community that's happening, friendships, relationships, opportunities to get to, to be known and to know, to grow in your faith in that way. But like, it's so intentional. It, just, it does not just happen. So here's what Paul says. We'll, we'll walk through these fairly quickly. Paul gives a few different analogies. It's like, here's what you are. So now if you would just jump into verse 3, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, and we're going to see a few things. Paul talks about being a soldier, a f- an athlete, and a farmer. A soldier, athlete, and a farmer. And so I want to look at the opposite of that. So here's the first point. Number one, you're a soldier, not a civilian. A soldier, not a civilian. Look at verse 3. He writes, uh, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No good soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You're a soldier, not a civilian. I, by the way, when he says share in suffering, this is like going to eliminate a lot of people. Who's going to be like, hey, do you want to be a leader in the church? Get ready to suffer. Like, I'm in. Like, it, it's not like, it, I love it. It's a really bad sales pitch, and I like that. He's like, hey, Timothy, share in suffering, man. This is going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. People are going to misunderstand you, say things about you, following Jesus to your neighbors, how they'll view you. There's going to be a lot of suffering attached to being a follower of Jesus, but share in it. You're not alone. Share. I love the idea of like we're not walking this alone and sharing this as a good soldier of Jesus. Um, you know, Paul obviously had the Roman soldier in mind when he's writing this, and there was a lot of different things around being like a Roman soldier. Um, if you committed to be a Roman soldier, you're basically committing to 20 years of your life to be a soldier to Rome. 20 years, like minimum, I'm going to be a soldier. Uh, you know, they, there was a lot of things around being a, so- a Roman soldier. You guys might like know this and remember Gladiator, but this is true. They'd get a tattoo of like their legion on them. Like this is the company or group of men I belong to. There's so much loyalty attached to that. Like, I belong to this group of men. Like, I'm here to, like, protect them, them, me. I'm here to follow orders. When he says, share as a good soldier of Jesus, you, you, you understand there was a commitment level that com- communicated to them. Like, oh, wait, like a Roman soldier? Isn't that, like, all in, like, 20 years of your life minimum here, and you're going to be all in and loyal to each other? There's so much communicated. Uh, there was something called the Roman Code of Theodosius, and here's what it says. We forbid men engaged on military service to engage in civilian occupations. This was like a known, like a Roman known code. They were saying, we forbid men 
to engage themselves in civilian occupations, just in civilian pursuits. Um, there's so many different like kind of war movies out there. I don't know if you guys remember the movie like Hurt Locker. Sorry if that offends anyone. Um, but in the movie Hurt Locker, uh, there's a scene where you know this guy basically works on like e like those bombs. He that, that's like what he does. He tries to like stop the bombs from blowing up. And you see him going back to civilian life. And there's like this really intense scene where he's in a grocery store. He's just walking through the grocery store, and it's just almost like just the normalcy of being in a grocery store, knowing his friends are back home. You know, being shot at, being ex you know, blown up. It's like the normalcy of just shopping like freaked him out. And I don't know why, but that was such an intense scene when you're watching that. And it, you felt that. You felt like, oh, this, th he's like, I can't do normal anymore. After what I've experienced, I can't do normal. There's almost a side of this. It's like, you are part of the kingdom of heaven. What might be normal for most, you, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> There's almost a side of like, I've woken up to the reality of heaven and hell and life and death. And I can't just kind of do status quo things anymore. And you realize like there is this idea of like, no, I'm a part of this heavenly kingdom. He says, as a good soldier of Jesus. And I know that that kind of language freaks people out, but it's so necessary. It's saying, be all in, be loyal, be committed. These earthly pursuits that you can get entangled in, they will leave you empty and dry. Once you've had a taste of heaven and what really matters, you can't really live for civilian things anymore because it's gonna, you're gonna lose sight, uh, lose sight of what really matters. And so I love this, this like call. It's just saying, don't lose sight of like now this thing you're a part of. It's so easy for me to get caught up in just like civilian matters, earthly matters. Things that like, you go, okay, they're good, but it's not primary. And he's saying, don't lose sight of that. Here's that other idea. So it's just complete commitment. Also, when he talks about this idea of being a soldier of Jesus, think about this. Every soldier, they know their enemy. They know who they're fighting against. Listen, church, we need to know who we're fighting against. We have to. I know I said this in the beginning, but like we are not fighting against each other. We're not fighting against some party. There is a, a realm that exists that's not flesh and blood, but it is principalities and powers. And I do think that we have to be aware of our enemy and his tactics. Meaning, I love what one pastor said. He said, if you don't have a Satan in your worldview, then you'll make everyone a Satan. And I do think that's happened a lot in the church. We Satanize everyone. You have no enemy in your Christian worldview. You have no Satan in your Christian worldview ever becomes Satan to you. No, we, there is actual literal Satan. Okay? And my, the point is, we got to stop making people our enemies who are not our en enemies. They're more of a casualty of war. There's some people who are just like, they, we can demonize them and they act like they're an enemy. When in reality, no, in this war, they're a casualty. And like, we need to be a paramedic to them. And we need to love them and help them. They're not, they're not Satan. Satan is Satan. And I think we need to understand who it is we're fighting against. And we need to stop demonizing everyone and realize, oh my gosh, they're a casualty of the spiritual war. And I'm called to be a paramedic to them and help them and come alongside them and point them to Jesus and be the good Samaritan who says, come on, I'll pay for your medical expenses. Let's go. I love you. And I care for you. And I want you to know Jesus. And I think that we have to realize that we have a true enemy. Um, it's interesting to me. I think that there's a lot of surface issues that we see and there's a lot of root issues Meaning, I do think that there's like some surface things that, that, that Christians get fixated on, and we're not getting to the root of the problem. So we'll be sidetracked by things that are important and that matter, but it's not the root thing. And the root thing is this. People are separated from God. 
they are enemies of God. Their sin has separated them from God. And we can get fixated on these, these things that do matter, or we can preach the gospel and watch them turn from death to life and watch them be born again and watch those secondary things that are important. Watch that become under the submission of Jesus. Like watch them say, you know what? I used to believe this or live this way or think this way on this topic. But in reality, once I knew Jesus and started following Jesus, Jesus changed that in me. And my point is, Christians, like it's so easy for us to engage in secondary things when in reality God's like preach the gospel because what people need is to not go to hell forever and so they need Jesus you preach the gospel herald the gospel and those things that do matter watch Jesus over time through sanctification through the spirit through grace watch Jesus slowly change that perspective in their heart and in their mind but it starts with the gospel and so it's sad to me because in the church for every 100 people that deal with the uh, fruit there's like one person dealing with the root and so I say we need more people dealing with the root of the matter and that is people are separated from God because of their sin. And let's preach the gospel and do the main thing. And let's stop getting sidetracked. Amen? We have to stop. It's, again, it's okay to entertain and get involved in some of those conversations sometimes. But don't get sidetracked with preaching the gospel of Jesus. What they need is not for you to come and, like, want, like you know, destroy them with your awesome argument. What they need is the gospel of Jesus to transform their heart. That's what they need more than anything. And I do not want to lose sight of that. Number two, so he says this, you're a soldier, not a civilian. And then he says you're an athlete, not a spectator. If you would, look at verse five, just a simple phrase. He says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. All right, so he brings up an athlete. So he goes, you're a soldier, you're not a civilian. And I'll say this, you're an athlete, you're not a spectator. So you're an athlete. He's like, hey, you're involved. Um, it's funny because you know how, like the, the phrase the armchair quarterback. It is funny to me like now that I'm like my mid 30s, I see myself doing this way too much. It's like I wouldn't have done that during that sporting game. It's like what are you talking about? We all can make these like, armchair quarterbacks and like hindsight's 2020. We can look at someone doing something at a game and be like, I can't believe they would do that. It's like I'm sorry. When you're like in the moment, there's like 400 pound men running at you. You're probably gonna do the same thing. Um, but we love to spectate. I don't know if you've noticed this, but spec- spectating has become a sport in and of itself. I remember going to a USC game in Southern California. This is when, like, Reggie Bush was there. I don't know if you guys know. This was, like, a big deal. Like, Matt Liner, Reggie Bush. I remember going to one of the games, and, dude, it is a cult. Like, we get there, and everyone painted as, like, I don't know, a USC Trojan thing. It's weird. It was so intense. And you realize, like, dude, just spectating alone has become its own thing. And it's become, like, a sport. In, like, there's people who spectate, and then there's people who spectate. And they get there early, and they arrive, and they're having a barbecue in their truck. And you're like, oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable. And I think what can happen in the church is we have made spectating part of the sport. And so I want to say this. Let's fight against that. You're not called to spectate and watch. Like, we're a part of this. Like, this is the equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what this time is. In reality, like, all of us are on the field. All of us are an athlete out there. And we're not here to spectate someone else. Like, God's like, I want you in the game. So the the idea of even what he says here in verse 5, he says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's actually also bringing up their integrity, right? He's bringing up the the, the things done in secret. He's basically saying they got to do things the right way. So it's not just doing things. It's also like who you are in the process really does matter. Like what you do in secret matters. When no one is looking, when no one is watching, competing according to the rules, those things matter. The things that no one knows about matters, and he's saying it's important that as you compete, that you take care of that. Like, you think about an athlete, right? When they have their, like, big day, you think about, like, a UFC fighter. It's like they have, like, I don't know how many minutes it is. What is it, 25 minutes? Maybe 25 minutes or something. In reality, they spent months and months, years, decades working up for that m- one moment. 
And the point is, there's going to be a lot of things behind the scenes as Christians we do that are behind the scenes, people don't see, and you're kind of getting ready for that, that game day moment, that conversation with your neighbor, that conversation with that family member, that heralding the gospel in some capacity, you're helping someone out. It's like you're doing so many things behind the scenes, but the behind the, thing, behind the scenes does matter. And he's like saying, you've got to compete according to the rules, meaning what you do in private and in secret does matter. Who cares if you do everything right outwardly, but nothing right inwardly, nothing right privately? Like with the church, we don't need another scandal in the church. There's been a lot. There's been enough. The things we do in secret matters. And this is basically what he's getting at, and this is what, how he's saying it. I love what Dallas Willard says about this idea. He says, it's a longer quote. He says, however we may understand the details, there can be no doubt on the biblical picture of human life that we were meant to be inhabited by God and to live by a power beyond ourselves. Human problems cannot be solved by human means. Human life can never flourish unless it pulses with the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. But only constant students of Jesus will begin to adequate power to fulfill their calling to be God's person for their time and place in the world. They are the only ones who develop the character that makes it safe to have such power. You and I cannot compete without the power of the Spirit. And you'll never have the power of the Spirit without those intimate alone times with God. And it starts with the things done in secret. What, what Paul is essentially getting at, he's pointing, I think, back to this overall thing he says throughout the New Testament. Paul loved sports. He loved athletes. He compared the Christian life a lot to being like an athlete or a competition. And Paul is basically saying it takes work. It takes repetition. It takes things done in secret to get ready for game day. It's how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9. I want to read it because it's so profound and so powerful. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Listen, no one stumbles into spiritual growth. No one. We all hate that guy who wakes up and has a six-pack. We're like, what did you do? You did nothing. You don't deserve that, right? But that doesn't happen spiritually. Like, no one wakes up this, like, spiritual monster. The, the idea is it will take work. It will take repetition. It will take those daily disciplines of saying, I don't feel like it, but, Lord, I'm going to give myself over to this process. It's like, I discipline my body. I might not always feel like waking up and seeking God or reading or praying. I might not feel like, but, Lord, I also know how much I need it, and I know when I do it, I know the joy I get from it. And there's lies right now that enemy's telling me, saying, just sleep in or just don't pray or just don't do it. And the idea is, no, like, regardless, I'm going to give myself over to this. Paul is basically saying, if you want spiritual growth, if you want to grow in any way, you have to do the things in secret. You have to compete by the rules. You have to do the things when no one's looking, no one's watching, no one's just a spiritual giant because of all the outward things. It's, it's done quietly and internally and away from people usually. The same way the athlete is amazing at what they do, it's usually done through a lot of work in secret. It's like this matters. Discipline your body matters. Guys, spiritually speaking, I would say this, fight to not put it on social media. Fight to give and to give in secret. Fight to pray and pray in your prayer closet. When Jesus talks about this, he, he's so clear. He's just like, it's great. It's very easy to do things publicly, but I care about the private things. I care about the things that no one sees. So I'd say this year, fight. Fight to serve and not put on social media. Or give and not put on social media. Fight to be part of this and let no one know but you and the Lord. He goes, I discipline my body daily. You're an athlete, not a spectator. And the last one is this. You're a farmer, not a consumer. 
I like this. I like being a farmer. I don't know why. This one's fun to me. He says, you're a farmer, not a consumer. Look at verse 6. He says, it is the hardworking farmer. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So let's just, and and then when Paul says, think about the things I've said, he's like, think about it. He's like, you're a farmer, not just a consumer. If you participate in the crops, it's because you planted. It's because you did something. In another place in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, this guy named Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. But Paul's like, there was work. There's planting. There's watering. But the increase, the glory goes to God. Paul's saying, hey, by the way, again, spiritually speaking, it's like farming. Meaning, when you bury a seed in the ground, it does not spring up immediately. It takes time. Discipleship takes time. Please, let me say this. Do not get discouraged for yourself or for others. If you're like, Josiah, I've tried. I always hear that. I've tried. I went to church. I prayed. I did this. I tried. And it's like like the Yoda whole thing. Don't try. Do it. <laughs> I don't know. It's just the whole idea of like, you know, it's not about you trying. It's about you planting and watering and planting and watering and tearing away just the bad, the bad soil or the bad things. Like, be consistent. Spiritual growth is not going to happen overnight. There is a lot of farming ideas to this. It will take time. You'll need to water it. You'll need good sunlight. You'll need quality soil. You'll need to tear out all the bugs that might come in and try to eat and take away. The, the point is, it is like farming being a Christian. It takes so much time and energy and consistency and just removing those things that creep in. He's like, this. you are a farmer, not a consumer. I'll say this. It's very easy for the church today to be just a consuming place. Okay, I really, listen, the church is not a building, obviously. The church is not a business. It's a body. And if we could just really see that. If it's a building, your, your view of church is like you go to church. You don't go to church. You are the church. I always struggle with the idea of like the church somehow being somewhere else. View this. The church is not somewhere else. You are the church. And here we are gathered together. And when you're not gathered, you're scattered, you're still the church. And so the idea of it's not a building, it's not a business. We're not competing against other churches. We're not businesses here. We're a body. And we're the part of the body of Christ. So I'll say be part of the local body and be part of the big C, capital C, church body. Be part of both. Both matter. But the idea is like we are a body. We need each other. We're joined and knit together. And that'll be frustrating. That'll be difficult. But there has to be that idea of like, okay, this will take energy and effort. And it is like farming. But the benefit is too, also, it's so sweet when you, man, some of the best things I've seen in ministry are just someone like, finally experiencing victory over sin. Okay, you know, when I was like a youth pastor, we used to have meetings, and there's like meetings where it's like, okay, how many kids are going to this camp? How many kids got saved? How many kids? And you're like, I don't know. Can I just tell you one thing? A kid started reading his Bible for the first time this week. That's the win. <laughs> Meaning, I think sometimes we always have like, we have weird outward goals. Can I tell you, it was, even for me, just over the years, seeing someone who's so stingy and begin to be generous, I'm like, wow, the, the gospel's taking root in their heart. They've never given ever. Now they're finally being a generous person. Like, those are victories. There's victories when you say, wow, this person who is so unforgiving, whenever they talked about that person, they had so much bitterness and hatred. Now I actually hear them talk about them with love and grace. The, the point is, it's so sweet. You get to participate in planting and also seeing the, the fruit of that. And I love that. He's like, the farmer gets to. And there's something so sweet about seeing little victories and growth. I love what this pastor named John Tyson said about this because this is so key. Here's the issue. He says this, everybody loves to show up when it's on fire, but nobody wants to gather the wood. We all want to see the church be on fire. Yo, that revival that took place like last year in Kentucky, I'm like, I want to go. I was so close to going. Because we all want to see it. We all want to be like, ah, oh, the glory of God is here. That's so cool. But in reality, you know what we need? 
not just people who want to warm themselves by the fire. We need people who say, I want to gather the wood. I'll, I'll be so glad just to gather the wood, and if the fire happens somewhere else, but I got to just participate, it's better to be a servant in the house of God. I, mean, I, just, I, want, I just want to participate in that way. I love that. We have a lot of people who want to warm themselves by the fire. We need people who want to gather the wood. That's what he's saying. Be a farmer. Gather the wood. You know, Tim Keller wrote something, this great little article on um, revivals and how revivals happen. And some of the, some of the argument is this. No one can force the hand of God into a revival. No one here, I can't, like, we can't fast enough. God, you owe us. Then it's not going to happen. <laughs> we can't. But I love what he says about this. Listen to this. He says, no one can force a major revival to happen by pushing the right buttons. God is sovereign because he is a God of grace. You can't merit a revival any more than you can merit your salvation. Yet I've seen over the years when we earnestly seek God for his own sake, not for ministry success, and we seek to be many cases a personal revival ourselves, positive spiritual dynamics begin to work in the church around us. I believe God has many more revivals up his sleeve before the final. Ultimate revival, the ultimate spring after winter, when the trees of woods will sing for joy. I love that. We can't press the right buttons. We can't. But can we just be our own little mini revival? Can we just say we're going to give ourselves over to this just for the sake of grace? Just for the sake of pursuing him and knowing him? Can we just like fight for this regardless and just watch, just watch what the Lord does? I love it. He's like, I believe many, God has many more revivals up his sleeve. I believe that. And, I, and my point is I cannot force the hand of God to do something. We can't, none of us can. But we can posture our hearts in a way where we say, okay, Lord, but we are ready. Lord, Lord, you, you show up to those who posture their heart towards you, to those who seek you. Okay, so we're going to do that. Listen, church, 2024 for us, um, on earth as is in heaven. Let's fight for that. Let us be little, little glimpses of the kingdom wherever we go. Lord, I'm available. Show up. I want to experience you. I'm a soldier. I'm an athlete. I'm a farmer. Lord, I, I want to do the things in secret. I want to do it well. I want to do it for you. I think this is going to be so key for us seeing spiritual growth and life and really people coming out of darkness into his marvelous light. I would love for us to participate in this. There's so many ways to do that. It's not just at the church, obviously. View your work as a mission field. View your home as your mission field. View your neighbors as your mission field. Like, yes, please, we could, we could use the help. I'm sure for sure in kids in different areas. But you know what? In reality, if we could just get every person in this room to say, I'm going to live on mission for Jesus in the context he's placed me in. Like, watch out. It'd be so cool to see that. Everyone says, no, I, I'm, I'm the body of Christ. I'm not going to church. I am the church. I'm going to live this out in my context. And I just feel like, watch what the Lord can do.